0: Over the last couple weeks, we've been in a kind of a mini-sermon series related to how God's grace changes us, and that's appropriate for us to consider uh, in light of the resurrection that we celebrated at Easter. Uh, We don't believe that God's power and grace was just something that was exhibited 2,000 years ago, but that God's grace and power should be demonstrated in our lives with as much power as brought Jesus from the grave. And so we've looked at some really practical areas of life, how does How does the gospel affect the attitude with which we do our work? How do we really learn, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that whatever we do, whether we eat or we drink, we do it for the glory of God? Last week, we talked about how God's grace should affect our words. And just on a very practical level, our speech should give grace to those who hear our voice. It's a very different perspective than how we kind of casually traipse through life. Carelessly with our words. And today I want to talk about how God's grace transforms our homes. I'm fully aware that we cannot talk about our homes without at some point kind of stepping on somebody's toes. Because our families are under attack. Regardless of your political persuasion, our country stands on the precipice of making sweeping changes to the definition of marriage. Uh, we, we will be undoing something that we will never be able to put back. Um, and you will see, within my lifetime, the concept of marriage disappear. Uh, I, I'm certain by the time I'm ready to go see the Lord, if he gives me that long, that less than 10% of Americans will even be consider marriage the way that we have grown to think about it. So please know that I'm aware that when we talk about marriage, there is no way for me to speak about this without it being a, hot topic. Uh, I'll be interested to see what Facebook does here this afternoon. Um, But listen, I I just want to be really straightforward to say that I don't really care about what is traditional or what is contemporary. My concern is what is biblical. And so I'm going here to try to do the very best to give you some very practical and biblical instruction that despite maybe being hard for our ears to hear, being conditioned by the culture that we live in, I'm going to do my best to give it straight and to give it graciously. I want the words that come from my lip. I want that lips to be heard with grace because I think God's plan for us is really the best thing. And so we understand that marriage is under attack by our culture and none of us sit on the Supreme Court, so there's very little that we can do about that. But marriage is under attack under our own roofs as well. I saw a cartoon the other day that just made me laugh and it was a man and a woman who obviously had some kind of relationship. They were not married, but they were in opposition to each other. And the woman kind of has this, you know, fake smile on her face, and she said, says uh, in the thought bubble above her head, if I was your wife, I'd poison your coffee. He <laughs> you flipped the page, and he says, if I was your husband, I would drink it. And so um, we, understand, we understand that uh, sometimes you don't even just need to be a male and female friend. Sometimes that kind of battle of the genders occurs in our own homes, doesn't it? You ever, you ever gone to a party at someone's house and like you knock on the door and you can tell the minute they open the door, something stinks. And it's, it's not like anything that it's their marriage. You know, it's not, they're, they haven't taken the garbage out. They have been in conflict five minutes before you knocked on the door and they have not made things right yet. You know, you can sense it, you know, you can cut the tension with a knife, you know, it's there. And so listen, We can begrudge all of the ways that marriage is under attack in our culture, but when we don't stand for what the Bible stands, we need to complain a little bit less. Because to some degree, where we're at as a culture is because Christians have not stood on the word alone related to uh, the doctrine of marriage. Because we believe that God created it, and that means he has the chance to regulate and define it, and he's the only one that gets a chance to do that. So, Two very simple points today. In my point here, this is not a systematic theology of marriage. We can do that at a later time, and I think that that would be good. I'm, I'm not going to say everything that could be said on this subject. It doesn't fit with the topic of what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that our marriages need grace. If our homes are ever going to be places of grace, our marriages need grace because if mom and dad get it right, what do you model then for your kids? And what do you model for your kids' friends that come into your home? You model graciousness. And so if mom and dad don't get it, it's not going to get passed on to the next generation. And so our marriages need just a little more grace in them. Why? Because I guarantee when you put your head on your pillow at night, if you will stop for 30 seconds to think, you you feel guilty. Because you know there is more that you could do as a husband or a wife. Listen, I try. I'm in the game. (laughs) When, When the Bible says... We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. One of the predominant areas where I fall short of the glory of God is in my marriage. And if you're honest, then um, you'll notice that guilt too. And that's our first point, that marriage can carry loads of guilt because we fall short of God's goals and his roles. And so I want to talk about what the Bible has to say both to husbands and to wives. Now listen, there are some of you that don't have husbands and wives. Some of you are single. Some of you hope to be married someday. Some of you hope to be remarried. Let me encourage you to file this away in your mind so that when you think God has brought that Prince Charming or that, you know, um, Princess Aurora into your life. I've got girls, sorry. I know her name. It's Aurora. Um, When you have that Prince Charming or that Princess Aurora come into your life, what should you look for? And ladies... If, if he does not have the rough material to be the kind of man that the Word of God says, you need to run from him. Because if you don't run from him now, he will run from you later. Men, if, if, you're, if, if, if she doesn't have the kind of spirit that the Bible talks about, don't even think about it, getting yoked to her. So even though this may sound, you know, he's talking about marriage and it doesn't apply to me. No, it, it does, because there's a good chance still, you're going to get married someday. And so I begin with the instruction to the husbands. We'll be in Ephesians 5, 25 through 30. And God's word says this. Husbands are called to be the loving leaders of their wives. Listen to Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives. See, this is how I know God wrote this because he knew how dense husbands were. You know, there is no code language. There is no numerology. He says, husbands, love your wives. Got it? Love your wives. But then he tells you how to love your wife. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself, he sacrificed himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, Husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. Now listen, you don't need to know Greek or Hebrew. You don't need to have any kind of degree. You just need to be able to understand the English language for this to be clear to you. It says, as an issue of first importance, a husband is to be known as a lover of wife. Not a teller of dirty jokes not a um, wandering eye person, not a person who stays up late at night to hide what he looks at on the internet. He is a lover of his wife. It's clear, there is no uncertainty here. You are to love your wife as completely as possible. This is, you're to love your wife in a way that is sanctifying. Just like Jesus loved the church and gave himself up to purify her, men, in the room, if you're married, your love should be so pure that it makes your wife holy that when when it is time for her eulogy to be read, her progress in the Christian life will be at least to some degree attributed to your leadership because you have encouraged and nurtured this kind of growth because you, you have loved her in a way that is sanctifying. You have loved her in a way that is sacrificial. You have loved her in a way that sustains her just as you sustain your own body. You don't have a single need in your body that you perpetually deny. You know, we start talking about barbecue, your belly's going to start grumbling. And then if I preach too long, you will get up and walk out because you gotta, you got to sustain that need. You know, you are thirsty, you get a drink. You don't go, hey, you know, I think you can go another three days without a drink. You know, no, I'm parched. I need something. I need to, I need to, to slake my thirst. Any need that you have, you fulfill. And it says, men... You are to treat your wife like she's your own body. You're to care for her that comprehensively. And so our love for our wives, man, is a sacred commitment that God has entrusted to us. He said, I have given you something precious. I have given you fine china. Be delicate with it. Treat it well. Be good. But Jesus also gives a second instruction. The first instruction is very clearly on love. But there's a second instruction that he gives just a few verses up, and this provides clarity also to the way that man is to love. Now, it's not second because it's not important. It's second because the first instruction is uh, demonstrative. You are to love. How are you to love? Let's see what it says in verses 22 through 24. Please notice that this is not instruction given to the husband. It's instruction given to the wife. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. We are told, not only are men supposed to love, but they are also supposed to lead. And I think the reason God wanted us to hear this second, it's not directed to men, it's told told to us by proxy through the instruction to women, is God wanted men to hear very clearly what their explicit instruction was. And their instruction was to love. And the instruction of the wife in Ephesians 5, 22-24 is to submit, and by implication, that means that men lead. And I think it's fascinating that God puts the... Uh, emphasis explicitly on loving and implicitly on leadership. And I think it tells us this, that one of the ways we love is, men, one of the ways we love is by leading, but we had better make sure that our leading is loving. We're going to stand accountable for that. And I think if we heard the word lead first, there'd be a temptation for us to turn our leadership into some form of ungodly and unloving leadership. But he says, as you love, be a leader like Christ is. Love and lead like Jesus. And I go, wow. That's a tall order. And I'll tell you, first and foremost, I fail at this every day. I mean, I get an F, you know. I get a D pretty regularly. (laughs) Um, I don't do it. And, man, I think if we were honest, we would all say, "Um, yeah, compare me to Jesus Mm, no, thank you. I don't. I don't want to do that. It's a huge calling. We're told in First uh, Peter three, verses one through four, we're given instructions for women. And let's see what that says here. <clears throat> Our uh, wives are called by the scriptures to be the gentle and peaceful compliments to their husbands. Look at what First Peter three. 1 through 4 says. It says, in the, same ways, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the Christian message, they may be won over without a message by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Your beauty should not consist of mere outward things like elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold ornaments or fine clothes. Instead, it should consist of what is inside the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very valuable in God's eyes. Now, again, I've told you we're not going to exhaust everything that we could say here. Because um, we get fired up when we hear that submit word. But I want you to notice that things are to work. Okay, If a, if a man takes a wife and he loves his wife, he husbands, like Christ loves the church... Why would a godly woman who's seeking to pursue Christ in the the realm of marriage not want to submit to that kind of man? I've never met a Christian woman who wants to do what the Bible says, who is unwilling to submit to a man who's doing his duty. Now, what's hard is when you're married to a man who doesn't want to do his duty. What do you do there? 1 Peter 3 actually tells you. It says the, the rules don't change. It's not if he does his thing, then you do your thing. It's live the right way. And perhaps through your example, your um, commitment and dedication to gospel living will be the message that he hears even though you don't share a word. And so submission, ladies, is not any particular form of action. There's no particular thing that you're supposed to do. It's an overall attitude. What does it look like? I think the best way to sum it up is that we are to strive for, ladies, for a complementing spirit, not a competing spirit. When the Bible talks about submission, it's talking about complimenting, not competing. And when I say complimenting, it's not like saying, "Um, hey, your hair looks nice today, you know, um, because for most men, that will not be a compliment we get all of our life. There will be less to compliment the older we get. It will disappear. And so when I say complimenting, I'm not talking about saying nice things. I'm talking about geometry. And I'm on dangerous territory because geometry is math, but um, I will attempt here to see what I can do to see if I can get this right. A complementary angle are two angles that together form a right angle of 90 degrees. Did I get it? All right. Woo. Can I get an amen? um, Here's the deal. Neither one of those angles by itself will add up to what it's supposed to. It needs a complement to complete it, to fill in where it is not sufficient on its own. And so this is the kind of attitude when we talk about submission. It's a complimenting spirit, not a spirit that says, you know, I'm going to squash your angle down and make my angle bigger. No, I'm going to compliment you. And the Bible spells it out. What does a submissive spirit look like? First Peter says it's quiet, it's gentle, it's humble, it's peaceful. It's not contentious. It's not fighting for its own rights. And so the New Testament picture is a beautiful one. Men are supposed to love and lead like Jesus, and women are supposed to submit like they submit to Jesus. Both are oriented to Jesus, and it's a beautiful picture of teamwork. When you see it happen, the world has to wonder what in the world is going on. That does not make any sense according to my point of view, but it works. Neither is sufficient on its own. They are complementary as they come together. And the same is true in marriage as in geometry. Men lead like Jesus, women submit to Jesus. Now, just for clarity, when we talk about these kinds of issues, it is easy for that to be lampooned, criticized, characterized by our culture. And so this does not mean that a husband's leadership, he is a dictator, and in the wife's submission, that she is a doormat. No. Equally made in the image of God, they just have different roles. Mom and dad, are you more important than your kids? Not in God's eyes. They're a human being made in the image of God too. But God has given you a role as a parent to be in authority over your kids. And unfortunately, listen, our society doesn't believe that anymore. We let our kids do whatever they want. Mom and dad have abdicated their responsibility to be authorities. And in the same way, God is saying, equally valuable in God's eyes because we're made in God's image, but there are different roles. And like our our culture doesn't even know if women need to go to the women's bathroom anymore. How in the world? We don't even know biology. Biology. I, I'm not going to go there. Sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm going miss, to miss my sermon up. So here's the deal. When we talk about leadership and submission, very practically, anyone who knows me for more than five minutes knows that my wife is both much smarter and much more spiritual than I am. Nobody laughed. Um, <laughs> you, you are not incredulous at that. And so in God's wisdom, because this is certainly not man's wisdom, I have the responsibility to lead my family, which is not something that I want to take lightly. But, um, maybe not being as smart, but trying to be smart, if my wife is both much smarter and much more spiritual than me, if I'm going to be the leader that I need to be, whose opinion do I really want on stuff? Hers. Now, I have the responsibility to make the call. But if I want to be a good leader, um, I'm going to lean on the best teammate that I've got. Because like a football coach... You want the right personnel package on the field for the right play at the right time. In the same way, I'll let Marcy do the math in our relationship. We're going to play to each other's strengths. But you know what? There comes a point sometimes, not often, but sometimes where we don't agree. Imagine that. Y'all been there too? Y'all been there too? Oh. Well, here's the thing that's awesome. Because we both affirm that the way the Bible talks about living is the right way to do it. She trusts me to make the decision, and she's got my back 100% of the time. It's an amazing gift because she trusts my leadership and because I've demonstrated for 20 years that I I want to, I fail horribly, but I want to lead like Jesus. And so here's where the guilt comes in. We talk about marriage is loaded with guilt because when I say, all right, husbands, how you doing? Who's got 100% on their man quiz? Okay, let's knock it down a little bit. Seventy-five percent, and we got seventy-five percent. What's that? A C? I guess by, we don't even know how to do grades anymore. C's like a B, I think, in some schools. You know, um, how you doing? Do you feel just a tad bit of guilt when it comes to comparing yourself to loving and leading like Jesus does? You put your head on your pillow at night. You could and should have done better. Women, how you doing? That submission word. That's really easy, isn't it? Men get it easy. They just have to love and lead and kill themselves, you know, for me, for Jesus. You know, I got to submit. That's so hard. I don't know which one is harder, to be quite honest. I mean, I feel bad that my wife has to submit to me. Um, how you doing, ladies? We got a la- Any ladies got 100% on their, their woman quiz? So there's a little bit of guilt. I think we see God's plan in his design and his standard. and We go, oh, I'm just not, I'm not there. Husbands, can you look at your wife and say, I have screwed up. I'm not the leader I'm supposed to be. But by God's grace and for his glory, I want to do better. Women, can you say the same thing? Look at your spouse and say, Yeah, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. The Bible tells me. It's clear. I don't need any interpretation. It's right there in English. I didn't do it. Will you forgive me? You see, coming to grips with this is tough. tough but it is necessary because God's grace can get rid of the guilt and it can transform your marriage. And so I want you to hear right now a testimony from one of our own about how God's grace transformed his marriage.
1: Well, good morning. If you're in Sunday school this morning, you have a little bit of an advantage because I shared a few more details and I'm going to be able to share right now just happened to fit in to our discussion this morning. The time frame that I'm going to cover is between 1975 and now. And I've got about 7 to 10 minutes to do it. So, hang on. In 1975, this 20-year-old guy was in Panama all by himself. Howard Air Force Base in a room with a Christian fanatic. He was just into the Bible, he was always doing something with it, um, you know, never a minute that this guy didn't have his nose in the Bible. And at first, it didn't make any sense to me that, um, that somebody would waste their time coming from my background, but I got curious, and I asked the gentleman, you know, what it was all about, and to cut a long story short he wanted to know if I wanted to accept Christ as my personal Savior. So he went through all of the Roman road. He went through everything that we are told that we're supposed to do and uh, did it well from that perspective. But there's one side of it that he did not do well. And that was as he convinced me that because I prayed that prayer, because I said that I wanted to accept Christ as my personal Savior, he totally assumed the fact that I had accepted Christ as my personal Savior biggest fault that any Christian can make in anybody's life that you're testifying to because we can always say what you want me to hear or or what you want to hear and yes I didn't want to say no I hadn't accepted Christ I didn't even know what I was talking about it ended up leading this young man into a decision of my own a marriage to somebody that was an alcoholic that I was going to conquer and do all of this, and ultimately, six years later, it failed. Horrible failure. I've lived in that guilt. God is forgiven, but even though God forgives, you can live with guilt. And I go back, and I think, would I have made the same decision had I truly known Jesus Christ as my personal Savior? In 1986, most of you know My wife, some of you don't. We will be married 29 years come this December. I wanted to marry this lady in 1986. In November, I asked her to marry me. And I thought that I had it all together. I figured that there would be uh, an immediate yes, and everything would be done with, and I came to a quick halt because it wasn't an immediate yes. It was a yes with a condition. And that condition was she would marry me if I would be the man of God that I said I was. Notice the word said I was. She confronted me with my salvation, and I could not answer that question. Because even though I know Romans 5, I couldn't implement Romans 5 without Jesus Christ. And it didn't mean anything. It was in December of 1986 that I turned my life over to Jesus Christ as Lord over my life. And I thought, as everybody does, when Jesus comes into your life, you have all the power of eternity and the kingdom that this is going to be a whole lot easier. I soon realized very quickly that I was in for a ride that I hadn't been prepared for. It got tough. Marriage is not easy. It's much easier to be single, walk away from things that that you don't like. It's much harder to work with somebody, but you can't do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. One person of 11 years, I sat with people like you. I sat right beside many like you. I sang hymns with many like you. Not one person ever confronted me in 11 years to ask me if I knew Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. No one ever held me accountable. No pastor, no deacon no member of the church ever said to me must be I was doing my job right I looked like everybody else I was totally accepted within the group pretty sad because I was going to spend eternity in hell if I'd have died Donna loved enough to confront me before we got married she was willing to turn and go the other direction if I wasn't going to be that person I thought I loved her a lot. I realized I loved her this much compared to today. Because if you know her, she's a gentle, loving, kind individual. But she has no hesitation behind closed doors to say, why don't you treat me like you treat somebody at church or why you treat somebody in Bible study or why you treat somebody at work? Because you know what? You treat the people you love the most, sometimes the worst. And without the power of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't make it. My dad died in 1990. I was in Wilmington when I heard that he had a stroke. I got on a plane and flew to Vermont. By the time I got back, I had told Donna that we are going to have to move. She had things packed and ready to go. By the time I got back, she was already packing, no question, no nothing. I had said, we need to go. We went. Horrible, horrible situation in 1992, our divorce, our our relationship almost ended. But for a couple that were in the congregation that we were with, decided on a night when we were having, we were ready to separate, we were ready to disappear, we were ready to go our own ways. In the middle of a great northern snowstorm that dumped four and a half feet of snow that night, they drove to our house got up out of bed, drove to our house, brought cake, brought coffee, sat down with us, and a man of God is willing to turn to me again and go, you're wrong. You're wrong. And his wife turned to my wife and said, you're wrong. And that night, they revealed something to us, that they loved us enough to be honest with us. Again, that only happens with the power of the Holy Spirit and people willing to be used. He said to me, you can't make her happy. I was failing terribly. I had, the wrong, I had the wrong standards. Even as a Christian, I had the wrong standards. I needed somebody to tell me. That's what leadership is. He said, you can't make her happy. That's God's job. Your job is to lead the best you can. You're not going to make her happy. Only God is. And turned to Donna and said, you're not going to make him happy. That has to be God's job. Are you willing to work together and let God work through the two of you? That's what this country is about to lose. Unless we let the Holy Spirit do in our marriages. And I'm a long way from perfect. I'm a long way from that leader that God wants me. I fail all the time. But if it weren't for Donna, as a helper, I'd fail far more often than I do today. Thank you.
0: I love that story because if man, husband, and wife both do what they are supposed to do, there's a mutual encouragement when it comes to seeking Christ that is needed. What I've said at this point, I'm going to wrap it up here really quickly, uh, just looking at that, that hour. Um, I've said that there internally there's some guilt. We, we all kind of recognize there's a standard. I don't live up to it. There's some guilt inside that we place upon ourselves. But here's the thing that is really kind of tricky about relational dynamics is, um, and I'll use Marcy as an example. If my failures are evident to me, they are probably evident to my wife too. Okay, so in addition to my internal guilt in our relational failure, it's easy for our spouses to add external condemnation. Now, not only am I guilty, but I'm condemned by the person that I love because I, I've done something stupid. And so now we've got the inner stuff, junk that we've got to work through. Now there's outer junk. How does this happen? Well, we take the thing that God has said is a covenant. It's a commitment, and We turn it into a contract. We develop a legalistic attitude that says you got to perform if you want, if you want it. you got to perform so if you don't do if you don't if you don't lead like Jesus I'm not I'm not going to submit and if you don't perform up to my standard you're not going to get my approval you're not going to get my acceptance and oh yeah you're not going to get any affection. I'm just going to withhold myself. That's not that's not a covenant. That's a contract, and we can't do this as people of God who experience the grace of God. We all need His forgiveness, and the Bible says very clearly that forgiven people should forgive people. Jesus knows this, and He tells a story about this in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, dealing with this whole idea of of outer condemnation that we place upon each other, like, well, you didn't perform up to my standards, and my standards are biblical, and so I'm going to withdraw from you. Stories in Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. So she brought an alabaster jar of fragrant oil and stood behind him at his feet, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with the hair of her head, kissing them and anointing them with the fragrant oil. And while all of this was going on, the Pharisee who has invited him saw this. And he said to him, if Jesus were really, truly a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Well, he's thinking, Simon's thinking these thoughts in his mind, and Jesus replies to his silent thoughts and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, say it. Jesus says, a creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, and he said, I suppose the one, he forgave more. Well, there's no supposition to it at all. Jesus says very clearly that the one who's forgiven much loves much, and the one who's forgiven little loves little. So in your relationship, as we think about this internal guilt and this external condemnation, let me just ask a really simple question. How much grace did it take to save you? What amount did you fill in when you say, God, I need to fill out the application for grace See, we all want lavish grace for ourselves. But when it comes to our relationships, we ration it out like it's a rare commodity, like it's diamonds. You know, I'm just going to give you a little piece. I'm going to give you the dust. I'm going to give you the crumbs. But I want the full thing for myself. I guarantee you, however much grace you think you needed, you needed more. You will sell your depravity short. And you'll underestimate the sacrifice of Christ. So we sin because we fall short in our roles, and then we sin by condemning our spouses for their falling short. And that's kind of the name of the game what we got to live with. We're sinners, saved by grace. No wonder marriage is in such need of God's grace. But if we can recognize our own tendencies to sin in marriage, if we can recognize that both we and our spouse are not perfect, then we have the opportunity, we're in the place where we can extend some grace. And when we extend grace, we have the opportunity to see our husband or our wife become what they are not right now. Because grace changes people. Law doesn't do it. Law just makes you angry and bitter, and it builds walls. But I want you to listen to this story. It's a fake story, but I think you'll get it. And it asks this question, Are you married to Mr. Law, or are you married to Mr. Grace? We were all married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in his way, very upright but he never understood our weaknesses. He came home every evening and he asked, how was your day? Did you do what I told you? Did you make the kids behave? Did you do the laundry? Is the dinner ready? Did you waste any time? Did you complete everything I put on your to-do list? So many demands and expectations. So hard as we tried, we could never be perfect. We could never satisfy him. We forgot things that were important to him. The children misbehaved. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed out our failings, and worst of all, he was always right. We had failed. We didn't get it right. And his remedy was always the same. Do better tomorrow. We didn't because we couldn't. And then Mr. Law died, and we remarried, this time to Mr. Grace, our new husband, whose name is Jesus. He comes home every evening, and the house is a mess. The children are naughty. Dinner is burning on the stove. And we've even had other men in the house during the day. But he sweeps us into his arms and he says, I love you, I chose you, I died for you, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. And our hearts melt. We don't understand such love. We expect him to despise and reject us and humiliate us, but he treats us so well. We are so glad that we belong to him now and forever. And we long to be fully pleasing to him. It's funny, but being married to Mr. Long never changed us. But being married to Mr. Grace is changing us deep within, and it is evident without. Grace changes, and it's a beautiful change. So what is the way forward for us? I, I'm just going to suggest two things here briefly. First, as countercultural as it sounds, embrace what God's Word says about marriage. You may not be strong enough to do what it says. You may, be not, you may not be strong enough to lead like Jesus. You may not be strong enough to submit to your husband. But that's the whole point. Do you want a marriage that's only strong by man's strength? Or do you, want a, uh, do you want a marriage that is a wonder to the world because it's supplied with God's strength? Number two. This is a Greek term, but cut each other a little slack. Your spouse, I know she was perfect when you married her, but she's a sinner. Your husband, I know he's tall, dark, and handsome, but you know what, he's a sinner. And it would be helpful if you could confess your sins and your desires. I want to do better. Trust me, your spouse knows that you're a sinner. Anybody doubt that? Your spouse knows that you are a sinner. The only question she has is whether you do or not. Confession is good for the soul. So together as a couple, do this. Fill out, the, fill out God's application for a grace loan and then have fun spending it on each other. Be gracious to one another. Do something small to start a new tradition to get moving in the right direction. Make your marriage one where Mr. and Mrs. Grace live, not Mr. and Mrs. Law. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you for this word. And uh, God, we repent that even a message like this just has to sound so foreign to us, so different. God, we live in strange times, and we don't There is no truth for us anymore in this day and age, in this culture, in this society. God, as Christians, we come before you and we take your word and we say that we believe it is true. And while we fail to live it out, God, we ask that by your spirit you give us the grace to repent and the grace to turn and the grace to live by your spirit for your glory. We need it. We need it in our marriages. We need it in our homes. Our kids need to see it. Our kids' friends need to see it. Our neighbors need to see it. Our church needs to see it. So God, I pray that you will help us to see your grace, not just at work in our work or in our words, but in our homes. In Jesus' name we pray.